Hi, everybody. Welcome to Shasai Podcast, conversations between scholars from around the world who study childhood, youth, and related institutions historically. As an official production of the Society for the History of Children and Youth, you can subscribe to these shows through iTunes or Google Play. Written and visual materials associated with each episode are available at our website, shcy.org. Enjoy. This is Starting Points, a project of the Kinder Institute on Constitutional Democracy at the University of Missouri. I'm Cassie Akavazi. I'm here today with Professor Sarah Gable in the College of Human Environmental Sciences. Our guest is Professor Catherine Rimp from the Department of History at MU and author of Raising Government Children, A History of Foster Care and the American Welfare State. Welcome Catherine and Sarah. It's great to be here. So I worked on the index for this book, and I know next to nothing about the history of foster care, and I found um, through working on the index that I learned a lot about the history of foster care and um, found this to be both an enjoyable and educational read. Um, You have in your introduction to the book um, a line that basically states what you're doing with this book and what this book explains um, and and what it offers in terms of helping us understand the history of foster care and how we got to where we are. I'm just going to read this line and then I'd ask you to unpack it a little bit. So you say in the introduction, foster care would become a disparaged form of welfare that would stigmatize the women who provided it, the children who received it, and their families. This book tells the story of that vision and its demise. So, Catherine, if you could just talk a little bit about what that vision was and why it was not fulfilled, how it got derailed. And I realize this is the whole book, which you can't necessarily summarize in a few lines, but if you could um, talk about that a little bit. Well, the vision that I write about is a vision of – what I kind of loosely describe as child welfare experts, child welfare professionals that originates in the early 20th century. And it comes out of this idea from the progressive era among uh, child welfare reformers that children should never be separated from their families for reasons of poverty alone, right? That, that, That there need to be supports in place so that that doesn't have to happen. And um, the children have to don't have to live in orphanages. They don't have to um, go into alternative, you know, foster homes or they weren't called foster homes at the time, but adoptive homes, other um, boarding homes um, that they wouldn't end up on the streets. And so, th- during the Great Depression and the creation of the New Deal welfare state, there was this incredible amount of optimism among child welfare reformers that the United States was setting up. Um, uh, programs that would provide true family security, like unemployment insurance, um, a minimum wage, uh, uh, support for the elderly, um, uh, uh, support to um, single mothers, so that when families hit hard times, like you know a death in the family or um, an unemployment crisis or having to care or having to care for elderly 
parents, that, that that crisis would not mean they couldn't take care of their children anymore. So they see this 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 framework being put into place. So their hope is, well, we'll still need foster care, but it really won't um, it'll affect very few people because we have these supports in place and we'll be able to, as a, as a profession, be able to provide really um, intense, individualized services for each child that might need out-of-home placement um, for other kinds of reasons, maybe because the child has a disability or the family is experiencing marital problems or, or, or something like that, but that it would not be um, a poverty program, that it would affect a very small number of people. And when I um, talk about how, how, in the passage that you read about how that, that um, I'm tracing the, the demise of that, that vision, it was always really idealized. It did not really address a lot of the realities of um, families in the mid-20th century. And those t two parts that I talked about, that vision that um, foster care would not be a poverty program and that it would be an individualized therapeutic service, um, that is is um, was never really the case, and any um, delusions, if you want to call it that, that child welfare reformers had that it was those delusions were over by the 1960s, just just gone, and it would by and it became really clear that in fact, foster care was um, a poverty program. I mean, that's one of the best indicators of who is in who is in foster care, and the system is so overburdened that that kind of um, individualized therapeutic service that child welfare reformers envisioned is just impossible. Okay, well, I want to follow up on that. So you mentioned that part of the vision of foster care was that it would be um, not a poverty program, yeah. that it would be therapeutic or rehabilitative. Mm -hmm. Right. And also, I, I remember reading that um, a number of the social workers hoped that it would be temporary. Not just hoped that it would be temporary, they believed that it was temporary without any evidence that that was the case, right? That was the, and, and this again was, um, you're, you're right, it's, it's, it's a vision of what kind of a modern 20th century foster care looks like because the models that it's based on from the 19th century were often children got sent off on you know, orphan trains that people might have heard of, on orphan trains to find kind of permanent new homes. And this was a vision, you're absolutely right, that foster care would be temporary, that children are placed outside the home so that the biological parents can um, uh, fix the things in their lives that need to be fixed, right? And, right? Um, and so that the child can come back. And that's part of the, um, the, the therapeutic temporary idea of it. Um, and what, um, what experts learned by the late 1950s when a couple of um, social scientists actually go and try to study the foster care population in a broad way for the first time is that, in fact, um, children were remaining in foster care indefinitely, that they were moving from home to home, um, and that many, many, many of them were never, never being adopted and never returning to their families of origin. So was there a point of derailment of this vision, or why wasn't it realized? And, and I'm sure there were a lot of moving pieces and parts that kept this vision from being fulfilled, but are there a few key? I don't think it's a moment of derailment, although there, I mean, there are some key moments, but I think it's more that the vision was never 
realistic. On the one hand, it's based on the idea that the, that the New Deal welfare state was far more robust than it really was. Um, and one thing that um, researchers found in that study in the 1950s was that um, in states where the um, aid to dependent children payments, um, which supported single mothers, in states where those payments were the lowest, um, children were more likely to go into foster care, right? So that, 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 that welfare state was never as robust as reformers believed that it would be. Um, and it also left a lot of people out. I mean, anyone who studies the New Deal um, and, and the Social Security Act knows that the way that these programs were set, out, set up, um, uh, agricultural workers and domestic workers um, who um, were, were excluded from a lot of the New Deal programs, which meant that most African-American families did not qualify for things like unemployment insurance. Um, and so a lot of people were... Um, left out single fathers if, if the if the wife died um, he would be very very unlikely to be able to collect aid to dependent children to help him support his 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 children and also I think one of the key problems that reformers had and Sarah might um, be interested in in, in, in in thinking about this is that daycare was never part of their vision it was never part of their vision of the supports that would be in place that would allow families to stay together um, many of the child welfare reformers who are working on foster care um, remain strongly opposed to daycare for a long time. Yeah. yeah. There's, um, the U.S. has never had a single policy approach to the care of dependent children when they can't be cared for by their parents. And that includes the kids that Catherine talks about in her book who end up in the foster care system. But that also includes children whose parents work and are employed. Um, and I'm not, as, I'm not a historian, so I don't know the exact times, but um, there were periods in history when parent, women, in particular, took their children to work with them, you know, so that they would be safe rather than leaving them at home or in, a neighbor, in the care of uh, older children in the neighborhood. But um, the foster care system is another strand of um, this fragmented policy approach that the U.S. has to dependent children who are not, like at the moment, in the care of their parents, their biological parents. And um, there are certain themes that cross the, um, so like compensatory education, which is uh, Head Start falls into that um, category, and that's early childhood experiences for children who are from disadvantaged households. How can we give them a leg up so they do better in school? Or child care for parents who, quote, voluntarily choose to be employed, mm -hmm. mothers primarily. Um, and what little the U.S. does for that group. Um, and then also with the foster care system, one of the threads across is that the, um, just kind of the perspective that the U.S. has, and many countries, I mean, it's not just for us, but about care work and about the extent to which anyone can do it. Um, kind of, you know, the, the child care workers, and I, I'm sure if you lined up foster care parents with child care workers, the picture would be very similar. They're primarily low-income individuals. A significant proportion of them themselves are accessing these family support systems, the food stamp program, mm -hmm. um, different kinds of social safety net programs. But care work is just not valued in the United States. We have never... Um, taken seriously the public investment we should be having in what I call our youngest citizens. I mean, these are citizens of the U.S., and we just don't 
um, we just do not have kind of a unified way of looking at that. And part of it for me, the way I look at it in my work, is that we ask so little of the people who provide the care work that it makes it, it just gives it such little value. I mean, if there are no expectations um, in terms of getting training or getting education or because, um, you know, the uh, when foster care parents started to be paid, well, you know what, they should in my opinion, be receiving some form of remuneration, and and that is so. a big that is a big theme um, that I write about is this this tension between thinking about foster parents and particularly foster mothers because there's not a whole lot of interest in or concern about foster fathers as long as there is a, f- a father, but the, the 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 tension between thinking of foster mothers as mothers and thinking about them as workers. Um, and there's there's a tension within foster parents themselves, and there's a tension really strongly um, in, in, um, in reformers because they do believe that foster parents have to be paid because they will not get um, uh, better quality foster parents if they're, if they're paid. They fear, like the old model of the 19th century of free placements where children were just placed in on homes with no oversight and no payment. Children were often exploited for their labor. And so the idea is that if you, if you pay... Um, if you pay foster parents, then you're going to have more oversight over the children, uh, and you're going to be able to do more to, to, to license the parents and, and regulate the parents um, and also have more control over what happens in the home. So they know they have to do this. They also know they can't attract um, foster parents if, if they don't um, pay them enough to provide for the children that are with them, but they're deeply, deeply, deeply uncomfortable with that always and and so they emphasize the need for foster parents to be um you know they they say the really good foster mothers are naturally loving and giving they have this instinct to love children but they're also professionals in that they know they're working with the agency um, and they have to be able to relinquish the child when it's time to do so and so they set up these incredibly difficult expectations of um of foster parents. And I think it, and, and so much of this, and, and, and the public, you know, similar to how it is today, I think there's a lot of suspicion from the public about people who are paid to mother, um, which is connected to this, this um, um, broader uh, concern about people who are paid to care, that if they are paid too well, then they can't really be caring daycare providers and um, um, home health aides for elderly people. And foster foster parents are in that category as well and have been. I mean, that's not new at yeah. all. Yeah. In this book, Catherine, you focus not only on foster parents and both foster mothers and foster fathers and, and the mm-hmm. expectations for them um, and also their experiences, but you also look at biological parents mm-hmm. and foster children and social workers. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're bringing in a lot of different perspectives. One, why did you choose this broad sweep? Mm-hmm. Um, and two, what were the challenges in this? Uh, were some stories easier to find than others? Uh, did you find yourself relating to one group more mm-hmm. than others mm-hmm. or any surprises? Um and why did you look at all of these different groups? That's a that's a great question, and it's a great question for for historians. We like to think about that the sources that we use and and how those sources influence the way that we tell stories. It was always really important for me to keep all four of those perspectives 
in mind. Um, the by far the hardest one to source is is the children, and um, uh, there's not a lot in this book that is truly from the perspective of of children. Um, and I think people who are interested in that perspective, there are lots of memoirs um, and, and books like that, that 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 they can read. That's not so um, much here. Um, the other three are actually pretty, pretty well sourced. And I, I was able to use one of the collections that I used extensively was the papers of the US Children's Bureau, um, which was a federal agency um, located in Washington, DC. And um, then, and the records are really, really rich. And one of the great things about those records is that um, women—not just women, but it's, it's, it's overwhelmingly women—who were either biological mothers or um, foster mothers would write letters to the U.S. Children's Bureau. Sometimes they'd write letters to Eleanor Roosevelt or to President Truman, and they'd get forwarded over to the U.S. Children's Bureau. And they might say something like, um, "You know." Um, the government took my baby. You know, it kind of start that way, right? Right? The, or the welfare took my baby. Here's what's happened. And it's like six pages of like sprawling handwriting of the story. And it's usually, you know, I talk to the judge and I talk to the this person and my neighbors all think my baby shouldn't have been taken from me. Please help me. And so there's nothing, actually nothing that the U.S. Children's Bureau could really do because um, foster care and child welfare services are locally based. The jurisdictions are, are local. They're not federal. Um, but those, those um, letters ended up there because they kind of would, they would turn to somebody in Washington when they were kind of at the end of their rope. Um, and um, foster mothers did the same thing. They would, they would write and a couple different themes that you'd see. One would be... Um, you know, I've been raising this child for um, three years, and now the local agency has changed its standards and says I no longer meet the standards, and they've taken the child away, and I'm not allowed to see the child anymore. Can you intervene? And the other one, which speaks to the other, the other theme of these letters from foster parents, which speaks to something we were just talking about, um, lots and lots of letters during the Depression from women saying, I don't know what to do. My husband is unemployed. I don't have any skills um, except having raised my children. Um, I know that there are homeless babies out there who, who need help. I, I, what can I do to get one of these babies to raise for pay? And it's really interesting because they're calling on this older model of um, – women's homework, like that married women who didn't work outside the home because they had children to raise, but if they're working class women, they need to bring in income. So they might um, take in adult boarders or take in laundry. Um, and it was, was an, another common occupation for married women was to board children for pay. And so these women in the 30s are calling on that old tradition. They know, they know about it. But this modern, um, this mod modernizing child child welfare um, field, um, their response is kind of horror, right? Nobody should be taking in a child because they want to be paid. Um, although they know they have to pay women to care for children, they're very concerned about any woman who puts that front and center. And one of the things that I argue is that that desire, and it gets back to the theme of care work, that desire to be paid for the work you do is not wrong. Um, Oh, exactly. And perhaps we need to get past the mm -hmm. 
resistance to that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I want to bring Sarah into this conversation. So Catherine has written this book as a historian. Um, Sarah, you work with in child development mm-hmm. and on child care. So how, um, from that perspective, what stuck out to you uh, or what resonated with you um, with this book? Um, well, one of the challenges that I see uh, that arises from this history of foster care and also uh, child care for parents who are employed is that in policy discussions and policy decisions, there's a constant tension in terms of whose best interests are driving the way that policy decisions get made and policy decisions get implemented. And I find it really interesting uh, from the perspective of a few of the themes that you talked about in terms of policy, for example, foster parents never being considered as adoptive parents. Right. right. Um, and then also issues concerning race, which yep. for me were really um, unsettling, yep. as though there are different developmental needs for children with different racial backgrounds. That's, I mean, that's not the case. Um, but I wondered if you could talk, Catherine, a little about how you as a historian kind of made sense of that, like, you know, because the vision, I mean, like from a developmental perspective, the vision is about family support. Yes. And one thing we know from child development research for years, and based primarily on Northern European samples, but um, operating differently, but not that differently in other groups of people, is that a family that's able to support itself is a family that's going to for lack of a better term, do right by their children, feel confident that they can do the best for their children. And um, I read about foster care, and it's the same in, in child care, and that's that we're not doing anything as a nation to systematically really, across the board, enhance family supports. Um, and so to me, that then turns the, the policy lens to, well, then are we considering the best interests of the children? And we're not. I mean, so it's like this weird tension of if we can't meet the ideal of supporting families, as was the vision for the foster mm-hmm. care system, mm-hmm. how is it that we also were never doing right by the kids? I mean, yeah. this idea that, that um, moving kids around, I mean, that's so, from a developmental perspective, that's just so painful to read it's so painful it's so painful because that is that's the best way to just undermine you know that child's potential and and part of that um you know and 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 I i think much of the the way that the child welfare profession was thinking about that issue really had changed by the 1970s um right but um uh that point that you mentioned about foster parents never being considered um, to be adoptive parents of the children in their care is one of the things that is very, very different about um, foster care today than in the past. And when people learn about that, they, they tend to be just shocked because it doesn't make any sense to us from what we think about what children need. It's stability and consistency. And the idea was that um, there, was, there were two things at play. One was you know, if we, if, you know, here we're this agency. We we contract with this small group of foster parents. If one of those families adopts the children, then we no longer have them as foster parents. And we're always trying to recruit new foster parents, and so we that's a, that's a loss. But the other one, and this is very very important, is that 
the, um, the, the period that I write about is also the period when adoption is on the rise, right? Um, and the pool of parents that were considered um, acceptable for adoption were a very different pool from the pool of parents that were considered ex um, acceptable to be foster parents. And so the idea was that foster parents are okay for taking in a child on a so-called temporary basis. They're going to be paid to do it, so we're a little suspicious of their motives anyway. Um, they tend to not be very affluent. Um, if that child becomes available for adoption, we want to put them in a good home, which is not a foster home. It's an, it, it, we want to put them in a good adoptive home where the parents meet different kinds of standards. And so one of the ways that, that, that foster parents rebel against that, because foster, you know, foster parents do develop attachments to their children, and the children develop attachments to their foster parents, as you know, um, is they would rebel against that by trying to adopt their children. And they would go to court to try to do it, and the agencies would make foster parents signed contracts saying they would never try to adopt the children in their care. And it sounds crazy to us now. Um, but of course, that, that, um, that philosophy had really was really changing in the 70s, 80s, um, and, and 90s, um, so that now, um, uh, when children in foster care become available for adoption, in, in most cases, I would say that, I mean, that the foster parents are one of the first places that agencies look to, to do exactly what you said, to maintain that stability and that maintain those attachments. Um, right. It's that, that part is very painful to read. Yeah. yeah. It's, um, well, and then along with that, uh, just the idea of how, because child development as uh, a serious area of inquiry was also developing across yes. this period yes. of time. Yes, yes, yes. And so it, what's interesting to me is how it um, differently, and not differently, it timing of influence. In childcare literature, the timing of the influence has been different than it has been in the foster care um, yeah. domain. Mm -hmm. And it, it's interesting to me because you know, we did actually know some things. Well, you know, but, but I think, you know, one of the, something that I also found very disturbing, actually just changing um, a little on this, it was the, uh, the chapter about the hard to place children yeah. and the problem children and how that kind of phenomenon was emerging at a time when research, I mean, those, I mean, that, that's such a, a, a narrow focus on the child's perspective or the child's needs in terms of how, I mean, they just lumped this whole group of kids together and said they were difficult and problems and hard yeah. to place and, and making it the child, it, it, it makes it the kid's problem. You know, that you're in foster care because you're the problem. Right. Right. Um, and really allowed the vision, again, the demise of the vision that we're going to support family structures um, with these different policy programs but yeah it's you're you're um, in foster care because you're a problem and also you're a problem because you're in foster yeah, care yeah there's it's very harmful oh, and i yeah. think it actually it comes one of the things i try to do in that chapter is try to understand and like where that where that comes from in a really really practical way which is that agencies are trying to place children there's basic board rates that are paid that are very low and certain children they find it is hard to it, it's hard to find places to place them that's where the term hard to place comes from and it's not necessarily the categories that would immediately come to mind infants are very hard 
Um, we now we think people want infants. Um, um, infants are hard because they require so much care. Um, teenagers are really hard. Right? School age children are hard because I mean I mean children who aren't school age are hard because they're not in school. Um, uh, children who are um, have disabilities I think that's maybe more less less surprising. Um, behavioral problems, um, but all of these categories um, that that if agencies were going to place those children. They had to pay more to place them, um, and it's a really it, that was true. That that was that was a that was a real thing, and they're trying to um, develop um, best practices um, for that and to, to under, understand that. But it was a it was a, a a practical response to a practical reality that then ends up labeling all children in foster care as somehow problematic because they are in foster care, right? If, you, if people really wanted these children, no one would have to be paid to take them. Yeah. And that's so it's oh. very, very painful to think about. Yeah. yeah. Well, and it also um, goes back to the statistic you cite in the introduction about the use of psychotropic medication yeah. with foster children. And that's a more contemporary, more contemporary finding. Yeah. But it's also an indication that I believe um, among certain sectors this hard-to-place or problem child um, approach to kids in foster care remains. Yes. It remains. It's um, as though developmentally they're different in some way when they're children who have been traumatized. Um, you know, and so that it's uh, it was hard to kind of see the roots of that in that chapter yeah. where that came from. However, though, I appreciated the practical perspective because it does require more resources yeah. for the families providing the care, especially those the medically fragile kids, because that's like that can be a full time job for a foster parent. Yeah, and and to me, one of the interesting things was the the the, the justifications that. Um, uh, would be offered as to why the board rate is higher. So if, so yes, if you have, um, say, a child who's in a wheelchair, well, we had to build this special ramp and we've had to redo our whole, okay, uh, so so child welfare professionals, they were okay with that. Like, that's that makes sense, right? When children who were, were hard to place because they had really severe behavioral problems, it's harder to quantify in that kind of way. And so, there was, um, you know, a sense that it was it was okay to say, well, the child who has a lot of temper tantrums or wets the bed, those parents might need to be paid a higher board rate because, you know, furniture is being destroyed and doors are being broken down and they're doing all of this laundry. But it's much harder to quantify the idea that parents may really just not want to live with a child with a lot of behavioral problems, um, and that's harder to con quantify. And experts were a lot less comfortable with the idea that we're we have to pay a higher board for children who, in their words, just bring a lower sense of reward. Mm -hmm. Right? It's very tough. Yeah. So in labeling a child hard to place or difficult, in part that leads to the stigmatization mm -hmm. of a foster child, which mm -hmm. we are still living mm -hmm. with. Um, but foster parents, um, well, I should say biological parents, too, are often stigmatized. You know, they can't take care of their children. This is perhaps their fault mm -hmm. that their child is in welfare. At least that's the perspective of some people maybe mm -hmm. today. 
But you mentioned in the book, and I found this really surprising, that a lot of parents, when the foster care system was being developed, voluntarily placed their children in foster care and and were not embarrassed to do so. Maybe you had a hard time doing Mm -hmm. that, but they weren't stigmatized for this. Um, And so I don't know if you could talk a little bit about maybe why or how that changed or why that sort of voluntary... um, response was more common. Yep. Well, first I will say that, you know, volunteerism, there's volunteerism and there's voluntarism. And some voluntary placements, um, some of those situations were fairly coercive, right? You know, if somebody goes and, and goes, goes to the child welfare agency and says, I'm having trouble taking for taking care of my child, how can you help me? And the only thing that the agency offers is well, you could voluntarily place your child in foster care, or this would, you clearly are, your life is clearly pretty, um, you're struggling a lot, it would be best for your baby to place them in foster care. Those can be voluntary placements, but there can also, there can be a heavy hand of the, of the, of the, um, of the social worker, for sure. But, but, um, but, but you're, but you're absolutely right. I mean, going back to the 19th century, I mean, Parents put their children in orphanages voluntarily because they were not able to care for their children. They put them in boarding homes voluntarily because they didn't have, um, couldn't take care of their children. Not not in all cases, but that's certainly part of the tradition. And as late as the um, late 1950s, more than half of foster care placements were done voluntarily. And um, the I have a chapter in the book where I talk about how that changes in the 1960s, and it is a change. It is a um, Uh, a modification to the Social Security Act, which finally allows federal money to be spent for board payments. It had not been allowed before. Um, Under these these, um, amendments in in the 1960s, uh, they, they developed something called AFDC Foster Care, which was a program to place foster children whose parents were AFDC eligible. If those, if those kids were placed into foster care, then the federal government would pay for their care. This is going to get kind of complicated, um, um, but it is an answer to your question. And um, those in the field who were worried that the system would be used punitively, you know, they're worried that if a mother goes to apply for AFDC, that um, the local agency might kind of punish them. This was particularly a concern in the South that they would that, that they would be punished by having their children placed in foster care. Um, the remedy for that was to require a court commitment, um, require an order of the court that the, that the child be placed um, in order for the agency to be able to get those federal AFDC foster care funds. And so this was put in place as a safeguard but what it did was essentially end voluntary placements because local agencies can't get the federal money if for, for children who are placed voluntarily, only for, only for children who are placed under court commitment. Did they anticipate that? There were definitely people who did okay. anticipate that and were horrified by it yeah. and then, you know, continued to write about it as it continued to be a problem. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this has been so enjoyable, and um, I'd like to conclude with a question, and I think we could go on and on uh, discussing this, but I'd like to conclude with a question about maybe a story that stuck out to you. So there are so many interesting personal stories throughout this book um, that highlight 
the history of foster care, and I'm sure you could think of any number of stories that stuck out to you, but if there's one you could leave us with, um, I'd be interested to hear. There's one that I that I write about um, in in my introduction that really did stick with me because it came with a it came with a photograph, and that was um, you know I talked about these letters written to the Children's Bureau, and this was a a, a, a long series of of letters um, written to um, President Truman. Um, uh, many, many. I mean, the correspondence went over. It wasn't really a correspondence because he wasn't writing back, right? But but um, all these letters from this woman in which she's just describing the um, what has happened to, to her. You know, she she was married. She left her husband because he was abusive. Um, she has this child. Um, she can't take care of the child. The local agency has tried to take the child away from her, and they've said that she's crazy, and they put her in a mental institution. Um, and, of course, there is no way to verify any of those um, stories, right? And, and she may very well have been a very dangerous parent for this this child. It's I only know the story from her from her perspective. But I think what stuck out to me about that story was that she sent this little um, photograph of her and her child with one of the letters. Um, it's it's a little color photograph, and this was clearly a woman who didn't have a lot of of income. And this photograph was probably very very important to her. And she sent it along with this letter to President Truman, who probably didn't, I mean, somebody would have read the letter, but it probably wasn't President Truman, um, sent this photograph along because she's trying to convey something about her connection to her child um, um, as a way to kind of illustrate the, um, you know, the tragedy that she saw in, in her life. And that one has always stuck out to me. Thank you so much, Catherine and Sarah. This has really Thank been you. enjoyable. Thank you. Thank you. This is Starting Points, a project of the Kinder Institute on Constitutional Democracy at the University of Missouri. Our guest is Professor Catherine Rimp from the Department of History at MU and author of Raising Government Children, A History of Foster Care. Thank you for listening to Shusai Podcasts. You can find more materials and features from the Society for the History of Children and Youth online, shcy.org.